0: This week we have another double parsha: Parshas Nitzavim and Parshas Vayelech. Parshas Nitzavim has 40 verses and zero mitzvos, And it begins, You are standing today, all of you, before Hashem your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your small children, your women, and your proselyte who is in the midst of the camp, from the hewer of the wood to the drawer of your water. Rashi tells us that Moshe had gathered the nation on the day of his death. So from here on, the rest of the Torah is all events that are happening on the day of Moshe's passing. The whole book of Deuteronomy covers only the last 37 days of Moshe's life. Now we're on the final day and Moshe is conveying his message to the people. And he begins by telling them that you're all standing here together. The men, the women, the elders, the regular folk, everyone's here together to hear this message, to hear this covenant that the Almighty is going to make with you as I am about to pass. Now, all the commentaries spend a lot of time trying to figure out why is Moshe preface his remarks by telling them, you are standing. So simply put, it means that he's telling them, you know, you're here, you're gathered, you're standing together to hear this message. But the commentaries offer a variety of other explanations as to why Moshe tells him, you are standing today, all of you, before Hashem. Your God. So Rashi quotes a midrash that the implication here is that you are still standing before Hashem, your God. Last week's Parsha, the Jewish people heard all the curses, all the admonition, all the maledictions of what's going to happen to them if they disobey God, if they stray after the idols, if they depart from the ways of the Torah. And their faces turned ashen. They felt that they were doomed. So Moshe begins this week's parsha by comforting them. Yes, you heard all those curses, but you know what? You're still standing despite all the sins that warranted your destruction. Over the course of the past 40 years, there's been all kinds of times where the Jewish people angered God, and maybe you would have thought that those actions warranted the Jewish people being destroyed, but you know what? You're still standing, and therefore that's comfort, that you'll still be standing in the future. And Rashi adds a very deep idea. Not only are you standing despite the admonishment, despite the curses that we read in last week's parsha, but quite the contrary. The admonishment, the curses themselves, are the cause for the continuity and the survival of the nation. It's a very powerful idea here. When God, so to speak, curses us, when God causes us to suffer, that actually stabilizes the nation and ensures its perpetuation. And I think this is a central idea in Jewish philosophy and certainly a retrospective of of Jewish history. When bad things befall our nation, as it's happened numerous times over our history, a lot of people wonder, you know, why does God do that to us? Why are we the recipients of so much national collective pain and suffering? And here we find... Of perspective here in Rashi, that the suffering that our nation endures and has to go through actually is the key to our survival. Yes, we have gone through all kinds of hells as a nation, and Moshe tells us we're still standing, and now, thousands of years later, Rashi is telling us, but I think it's true still today, that actually all that suffering made sure that we'll survive as a nation. If we did not have all that pain, all that suffering, all the torment that our nation had experienced, we probably would have dissolved as a nation and ceased to exist entirely. So those are several reasons that Rashi gives. Rashi adds another interpretation as to why we're standing. And he explains that the Jewish nation was standing at attention for the transfer of power. This is the last day of Moshe's life. This is the last day of Moshe's reign as the leader of the Jewish people starting the following day, there's a new leader and that is going to be Joshua. And therefore, Moshe gathered the nation, made them stand at attention, in rank, to encourage them, to coach them that now, from now on, it's not going to be me, it's going to be Joshua and the whole nation has to accept that transfer of power. Rashi adds, when Joshua died, he did the same thing. When Samuel died, he did the same thing. When there's one leader, giving over power to the next one, it's important for everyone to be privy to that transfer and thus the transition be more smooth. The Rebbeinah offers two additional explanations behind the meaning of the word, you are still standing. And he he explains that Moshe has given us two promises. Number one, that our nation will always stand and will always survive and would always endure. In addition, says the Rabbeinu Bachai, Moshe is promising them in this verse that not only will they stand in this world, but via the observance and the study of Torah, they will merit eternal life in Olabah in the afterlife. And the reason why Moshe has to promise the Jewish people about that is because they just heard all these terrible curses and admonishment of what happens if they disobey the Torah, and therefore Moshe comforts them and says, you're going to stand, you're going to be erect in this world, but as a result of these curses, and how it's going to keep you in check, and how it's going to cleanse you from your sin, you're going to be meriting life in Olam Haba." And he explains, you're standing before Hashem, your God. When does someone truly stand before God? That's after the soul has departed their body. The soul has been liberated from their body and their soul can stand before God. And all of you are standing. That is hinted to the fact that all of the Jewish people, everyone, has a portion in al has a portion in the afterlife, has a connection to eternity via their souls. So these are five or six different explanations as to why Moshe begins his final message by telling the Jewish people they are standing before Hashem, their God. And he lists all the people that are there. There's the old people, the officers, all the men, the women, the children, the proselyte. And then he says, from the hewer of the wood, the woodchopper, to the water carrier. So Rashi tells us that who are these woodchoppers and water carriers? These are Canaanites that came to convert in the times of Moshe, just as the Gibeonites came to convert in the times of Joshua. In the times of Joshua, a nation called the Gibeonites made believe that they were traveling from a great distance and they tried to convert. And because they tried to convert under somewhat questionable circumstances, Joshua made them water carriers and woodchoppers to make them into this class where they're kind of held at an arm's length. And similarly, Rashi tells us that in the times of Moses, Canaanite people came to convert and Moses made them into woodchoppers, and water carriers. Now the Midrash adds that Moshe did not convert them, but created this permanent underclass of people that are part of the nation, so to speak, but not really fully part of the nation. The Ramban understands that these were not Canaanite converts, rather these were Egyptian converts, and these are the leftovers of the mixed multitude, the Egyptians that joined the Jewish people in their Exodus. Okay, so everyone's gathered, and everyone's there, And what's the purpose, what's the objective of this gathering? To pass in the covenant of Hashem, your God, and into his imprecation that Hashem, your God, seals with you today. There's going to be a covenant. There's going to be a bond. There's going to be a treaty that Moses is going to oversee between God and the Jewish people on this day. Why? In order to establish you today as a people to him and that he be a God to you as he spoke to you and as he swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. The Jewish people have a special connection with God. It began, of course, with Abraham and uh, to Isaac and to Jacob. There's a pledge that he's going to be our God, but we're going to be his people. There has to be a mutual understanding here, a mutual agreement, a mutual commitment the Jewish people to God, and God to the Jewish people, and there's going to be a covenant, a sealing of this treaty today on Moses' final day. Now, the commentaries note that there already was a covenant between the Jewish people and God at Sinai. In fact, in Exodus 24, there's a very elaborate ceremony of this agreement of the covenant between the Jewish people and God, and why is there a need for a second covenant? So Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, he explains that, yes, the Jewish people had a covenant with God from Sinai, but 40 days after the Sinai experience, the Jewish people sent the golden calf. And by doing that, they repudiated the covenant, they annulled it, they reneged upon their agreement, and therefore it's important for us to institute a second covenant to replace the one that was broken. The Ramban has a little bit of a different explanation as to why we need a second covenant. He explains that the first covenant did not include curses and maledictions. Yes, it, there was an agreement, but there wasn't an enforcement mechanism to the agreement. And therefore now the second covenant is just building upon the first one, but it's adding the, the enforcement of the curses and the maledictions in the event that the Jewish people stray from Torah. Now the Ramban, he speculates that maybe the same ceremony that was done in the first covenant was done over here. You may recall in Exodus 24, there was the ceremony where they did a sacrifice and they split the blood of the sacrifice in half. Half of it was sprayed on the altar. Half of it was sprayed on the Jewish people. That was the ceremony or part of the ceremony of the first covenant. That's when the Jewish people uttered the famous words, Na seven Ishma, we will do and we will listen. That was their acceptance of the covenant. And Raman speculates maybe They indeed did this again on this covenant, on this final day of Moses' life, but it doesn't need to mention it because it's talking about the covenant and obviously you'll know that whatever they did for the first covenant, they did for the renewal of the vows, so to speak. Now Moshe lays it out pretty clearly. He says that the objective of the covenant is to establish this relationship, the nation of the Jewish people, our religion, our people, we have a bond with God, but there's also consequences to that. Meaning that as a direct result of the fact that God committed himself to us via what he swore to our forefathers, via what he committed to us, he is locked in. He can't swap us out for a different nation. And therefore, as a result of that, he has to ensure that we uphold our deal. We've gone beyond the point of no return. There's no way to undo this bond between the Jewish people and God, and therefore we have to strengthen it because we have no other option. God committed himself to us, and therefore we have to, whether we like it or not, ensure that we stay the course, that we maintain our commitment to him, and in the event that we stray from it, there's going to be godly intervention to make sure that this is a mutual, a bilateral relationship between the Jewish people and God. So that's the introduction to this covenant. And Moshe adds that this is not a covenant solely between the people present at that time and God, but all Jews throughout all of history are part of this covenant. Now, not with you alone do I seal this covenant and this imprecation, but with whoever is here, standing with us today before Hashem, our God, and with whoever is not here with us today, all of the Jewish people throughout all of history are part of this covenant. Now, the obvious question is, I was born in 1986. How can I be committed to the covenant that happened 3,300 years ago? How could the Jewish people who were not present at that ceremony, how could they be included? How could they be incorporated into that covenant? So the B'nai B'chai gives two explanations. The first one is that the father is the root of, And the children are the branches. There's a connection between the forebears, the antecedents, and their progeny and their future children. And everything that erupts from the ground is rooted in the root that is subterranean. And therefore, because we have a connection to our forebears, we didn't just spontaneously arrive on this earth as a nation, rather we deduced from our forbearers, from our antecedents, and therefore because they pledged it, inherent in us is the commitment that they already did. We are the branches, they are the roots, the commitment that's present in the roots is present in the branches as well. That's the first explanation that he tells us. And then he adds something very powerful. He quotes from the Talmud that says that at this ceremony wasn't just the people, it wasn't just the bodies, it was also the souls. Which souls? All the souls. All the souls that were created since the times of Genesis, since the beginning of the world, were all present at that agreement at the covenant. Similar to Sinai, that the Talmud tells us. At Sinai, it wasn't just the people that were there. It was all future generations, all the souls, including the souls of future converts, were also present at Sinai, says the Talmud in the book of Shabbos. Similarly, over here, all the souls were present, and thus, even if we don't remember the commitment that we ourselves gave to God in this covenant, this agreement, our souls were there, and therefore our souls can be on the hook to adhere to the terms of this covenant. And Moshe continues by telling them that there is a risk for people to maybe renege upon the relationship with God. For you know how we dwelled in the land of Egypt, how we passed in the midst of the nations through whom we passed. We've had a lot of experiences with all kinds of different people. And you saw their abominations and their detestable idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold that were with them. Perhaps there is among you a man or a woman, or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away from being with Hashem our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Maybe there was someone who was seduced by the pagan rituals and practices of the idolatrous nations that we have encountered. Perhaps there is among you a root flourishing with gall and wormwood, which is various harmful and and poisonous growths. And it will be that when he hears the words of this imprecation, he will bless himself in his heart saying, peace will be with me. Though I walk as my heart sees fit, Thereby adding the watered upon the thirsty. What Moses is telling the Jewish people here is maybe there's people, individuals, families, or maybe even whole tribes that because of their exposure to the idolatrous ways of the nations that we've encountered, they've developed a taste and affinity for idolatry. And even though they're hearing all this warnings and all these curses about not following the idols, not following their ways, they'll say, you know what? I'm going to follow my lusts, my desires, but I'll be safe and nothing bad's going to happen to me. What Moshe is telling them is that there's a risk because people have been exposed to the idolatrous ways of the people they've encountered, there's a risk of them following it. Now, it's really interesting. In verse 16, Moshe tells them, and you saw their abominations and their detestable idols. Rashi explains. What does it mean? It means that these idols were as loathsome as rodents and as execrable as excrement. Yet there is a risk that they'll be seduced and they'll turn away from God to follow the idols. And the obvious question is, if idolatry is so abhorrent, why is there a risk of people being seduced to follow it, to adhere to it? If they re- recognize that, that what we were witnessing as abominations is detestable idols, detestable things are not appealing. So why is there a risk of people following them? So I think there's uh, several ideas here. Number one is, my grandfather said from his Rebbe, Rebbe Rucham that no one wants to be a pariah. Everyone wants to be admired. Everyone wants to be respected. Everyone wants to have a certain stature in the society that they live. And even in the eyes of people that aren't sophisticated, we feel an innate desire to be liked, to be admired in their eyes. And then he added, a primary force that guides a person in his life is the fear of being an outcast, the fear of being a pariah. And therefore, if the whole society is doing idolatry and we're the outlier, we're the outcast, even though the idolatry is detestable by any objective standard, there's still a risk because we're exposed, because we're in that society, and because we have an innate need To harmonize our behavior with what's prevalent around us, there's the risk that even the things that are so detestable will become appealing in our eyes and therefore we have to have this covenant. There's maybe another idea and that is that once a standard has been violated, it becomes increasingly more acceptable and more normal. They talk about the four-minute mile, for example. No one was able to break the four-minute mile or the 10-second barrier until someone did it, once someone does the four-minute mile, it kind of changes the psychology and it can be done again with comparative ease. And that's the idea that once there's a standard that's been broken in the eyes of everyone, it becomes a thing of the past, a thing of ease. And that applies to the negative side as well as the positive side. What would be a huge scandal 50 or 100 years ago with respect to indecent exposure is today considered normal. What was deviant yesterday is cool and hip today. What was taboo in yesteryear maybe today can be viewed as free expression or art. Yes, the Jewish people, Moshe is telling them, what you're seeing is something nauseating, something abominable. You're looking at excrement and rodents. But once you see it, You've been desensitized. Once you see it, once you encounter it, you've been calloused. Maybe the next time, it won't look as offensive. And maybe sometime down the line, it will start to look appealing. There's a statement in the Talmud that we've quoted in the past. If you see a sota, a suspected adulteress, in her kilkula, which means in her disgrace, you should make yourself a nazir someone who abstains from wine. When you see someone who behaves in a potentially promiscuous fashion, you have to say, maybe it could happen to me, and you have to protect yourself by abstaining from wine. But the words of the Talmud are very precise. You see a sota, you see a suspected adulteress in her disgrace. Maybe if you see someone in their disgrace, maybe that would be enough of a prophylactic That you won't do the same thing. Yet our sages tell us, you see the sotan or disgrace? Yes, it's disgraceful by any objective standard. But when you see that, that kind of sin enters your realm of possibility. And right away you have to protect yourself from falling into the same mistakes that that person did. It's so a very deep insight for us that when we encounter something that's very bad, once it's in our field of vision, once something that we encountered, there's a greater risk now of us making that same mistake. There's a few interesting descriptions here in the verse. So for example, it starts off, perhaps there is among you a root flourishing with poisonous or harmful characteristics. There's a root that's sprouting something bitter. So there's a very famous Ramban here. The Ramban explains that it starts off with people that's hearts are turning to idolatry. Maybe there's someone who already believes in idolatry. Or maybe there is someone who will have a child, i.e. there's a root that's sprouting something bitter. Someone's going to have a child who will follow the ways of the idol. And it's already present in the parent. A very deep idea here. Maybe there is a root that's going to produce something bitter or poisonous. Even though the child has yet to be born, maybe there's a parent here who already has something corrupt in their root, so to speak, that's going to be manifested in their children. And he adds that no one will have corrupt children unless they themselves were corrupt to some degree on their own. A child is the emanation, is the outgrowth of the parent. If there's something messed up in the child, if something corrupt in the child, if something bitter in the child, then we know for sure that in the father, in the parent, there was something bitter as well. Now, it's very hard for us to extend this on a practical level because, you know, after all, Abraham had Ishmael and Isaac had Esau. So it's very hard for us to point fingers, but there's a very deep idea here that the children are an outgrowth and expression of the parents and the parents, maybe there's something corrupt with the parents. Maybe there is a root that is going to sprout something bitter. And then in verse 18, it says that maybe there's going to be someone who says, you know what, I'm going to follow my heart's content. I'm going to do all the sins. I'm not going to be worried about this covenant. And then it concludes, harava thereby adding the watered upon the thirsty, adding the satiated upon the thirsty. What exactly does that mean? This is a subject that the commentators address. There's a very deep Ramban here, where he talks about the insatiability of lust and a vicious cycle of self-inflicted unnatural desires. And he explains that the word Rava, which is translated here as watered, that refers to someone who has satiated their desires. Whereas the word tsumea, which means thirsty, that refers to someone who is lustful. When someone's lustful, they're called thirsty. And he explains a very deep and very maybe counterintuitive point that capitulation to lust does not resolve the lust. It just moves the goalposts to the next level, to the next level of lust and I'll read it because it's such an important citation here. When there's someone who's satiated, they don't desire things that are bad for them. They don't desire things that are harmful. But a little bit of lust enters their heart, and they decide to capitulate to that lust, to give in, and to follow their desires. What happens then? So we would think that after someone, you know, they have a need, they have a desire, they have a craving, they have a lust, they fulfill it, now they're quenched. Now they're satiated. Now their desires have been fulfilled and their desires go away. Not so, says the Ramban. Instead, they're going to increase even more loss and more thirst for the things that they desired or even a little bit more. They'll start desiring new things that are beyond the things that they initially desired. And he gives an example. You have someone who is immersed In pursuit of promiscuity, but because they're so immersed in it, they're so lustful, that will actually cause them to have new kinds of lust for things that are more unnatural. Not only in matters of promiscuity tells us the Ramban, but in all kinds of lusts, this actually applies and quotes the Talmud. The Talmud tells us in two places that there is a small organ in man. If you feed it, it is starving. And if you starve it, it is satiated. Meaning that there's a certain order within man that works in the opposite way that you would expect. Normally, if someone's hungry, you feed them. They're not hungry anymore. If someone is starved, and the more they get starved, the hungrier they get. Yet there is one area where the opposite applies. If you satiate it, it gets hungrier and hungrier. If you starve it, it gets more and more satiated. That is what is being Referred to here when it says adding the watered upon the thirsty. What this means is that someone who is following the way of the Sarah, the evil inclination trying to fulfill all their desires, they assume it's going to quench that thirst? Actually, no. It's going to add the person who is satiated with the person who is desirous, is Lustful, because he will desire and he will lust and they'll be thirsty for the things that previously he was satiated for that. They're going to seek to quench the thirst and they will return thirstier still. So what's going to happen for people who do this? What's going to happen for the people that are going to depart from the ways of God, that are going to renege upon this covenant, that are going to follow the ways of the idols, that are going to pursue their lusts, and not try to curb them, Hashem will not be willing to forgive him. For then Hashem's anger and jealousy will smoke up against the man, and the entire curses written in this book will come down upon him. Hashem will raise his name from under the heavens. Hashem will set him aside for evil from among all the tribes of Israel. All the curses that are present in this book of the Torah are going to fall upon them. Not only will the curses fall upon him, they're going to fall upon the entire public, the rest of the nation. And people are going to be so disturbed by the destruction that's going to ensue, they're going to just wonder about it. Why did this happen? The later generation will say, your children who will rise after you and the foreigner will come from a distant land. When they see the plagues of the land and its illnesses, with which Hashem has afflicted it. Sulfur and salt and a conflagration of the entire land, a land that won't be able to be sown or won't have anything sprout from it, no grass will arise from it, like the upheaval of Sodom and Gomorrah. Everyone's going to wonder, for what reason did Hashem do this to the land? Why this wrathfulness of great anger? Moshe here is telling the Jewish people, God is promising, in the event that people stray from Torah, there's going to be tremendous destruction, not just to the individual who behaves in a sinful fashion, but for the whole land. The land's going to be destroyed with sulfur and salt and a conflagration. Nothing's going to be growing in that land. And everyone's going to wonder, all the onlookers are going to be watching with amazement and saying, how do we explain this? Why did God do this? And they will say, they'll know the answer, because they forsook the covenant of Hashem, the God of their forefathers, that he sealed with them, when he took them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and served the gods of others and prostrated themselves to them, gods that they didn't know. So God's anger flared against the land to bring upon it the entire curse written in this book. And Hashem removed them from their soil with anger, with wrath, and with great fury. And he cast them to another land as this very day. There's a promise here. In the event that people disobey the Torah, stray from God, deviate after the gods of others, the curses will befall them. Sulfur, salt, fire, destruction, removal from the land. God's going to be angry at us, treat us with wrath, with great fury, and relocate us to a different land. There's an interesting Chizkuni here, one of the commentators on the Torah. He asked the question, why does it talk about sulfur and salt, a conflagration of the entire land? What's the significance of sulfur and salt? So he explains that these two are opposites. One of them is the most fire retardant, and one is the most combustible. And the lesson is here, that in the event that the Jewish people obey the Torah, adhere to its edicts and dicta, well, then the Jewish people will be like salt. No fire will be able to consume us. Whereas in the event that the Jewish people stray from Torah, well, then the fire will consume them like sulfur. And this dovetails with an idea that we saw last week, that the spectrum, the scope of our accomplishment is very vast. When we rise, we rise very high, and when we fall, we fall very low. And I also think it's interesting here that there's an answer to the secret of Jewish misfortune over the years. Here we see the answer. Why did God do all these terrible things to us? Because we forsook the covenant of of Hashem, we forsook the Torah, we sinned, we followed the gods of others, and as a result of that, the Almighty removed us from upon our soil with anger, with wrath, with great fury, and threw us to a different land as this very day. The chapter ends, the hidden sins are for Hashem our God, but the revealed sins are for us and our children forever to carry out the words of this Torah. If you actually look in a Hebrew version of the Chumash, you'll notice that this particular verse, the final verse of chapter 29, it has 11 dots upon three of the words. So that's an interesting thing. We'll talk about that in a second. So what does this mean that the hidden sins are for Hashem or God, but the revealed sins are for us? So it actually tells us that the people you know, are asking the obvious question. One person is going to sin. Everyone's going to suffer. What could we have done about that? It's not fair to punish the public because of the sins of the individual. After all, this is one person that sinned, one person who was this bad root, one person who goes astray, and the whole land is going to suffer. It's not fair. I'm not responsible for the sins of my fellow man. And the answer is that, yes, indeed, that's true. The hidden sins of Hashem, our God. Indeed, when another person sins in a hidden fashion, I'm not aware of it, I'm not responsible for the sins that he does in private. However, the revealed sins, that's for us and our children, it's our responsibility to try to eradicate the evil within our midst. And you know what? If we don't do anything about it, if we sit around and fold our hands And say it's futile to do anything or I don't want to make any controversy. I don't want to rattle the boat. If we do that, then we are culpable like everyone else. And there's a very deep idea here underlying this mutual responsibility and codependence. We believe that our entire nation on a spiritual level, we're all part of the same whole. We all have one soul, one large collective national soul. That is the soul of the whole Jewish people. We have a mitzvah. Love your fellow as yourself. The commentaries explain. What does that mean? It means to recognize that in truth, on a spiritual level, we're really the same thing. We're really parts of the same thing. The only reason why I view myself as different than other people is because I view the world through the lenses of a body, through the lens of the Yitzhahara, I don't realize that I'm a soul, if I did realize that I'm a soul, on a soul level, on that plane, we really are part of one whole. And therefore, one person sins, that blemish actually sullies my soul as well as his soul because our souls are united. Now, why are there the dots over the letters? So as a general rule, every time the Torah there's dots over the letters, it's curbing the full effect of those words. And Rashi tells us, quoting from the Talmud, that this rule that everyone is codependent, everyone's mutually responsible for their fellow Jewish brethren, that only begins once the Jewish people cross over the Jordan and they accept upon themselves the blessings and curses of Mount Gerizim and Mount Abel They read about last week, only then are they bound to each other to this degree that the sins of one extend to the other and to the whole nation at large. Thus concludes chapter 29. Chapter 30 begins to talk about the reclamation. So if 29 was about when things go south, what happens then? How do we reclaim ourselves? How do we restore the luster and the stature of the past? The Ramban gives us an introduction by telling us that this entire chapter is talking about the future. It's futuristic. It's talking about the Messianic times, and therefore they have not yet happened. I want to note that Rabban lived in the 13th century. I would say us today living in the 21st century, it's very hard for us to read it and not get the feeling that at least some of these prophecies have already been fulfilled or at least the groundwork has been laid for their fulfillment. The chapter begins... It will be that when all these things come upon you, the blessings of the curse that I presented before you, you will take it to your heart. You're going to absorb this lesson amid the nations where Hashem your God has dispersed you, and you will return unto Hashem your God and listen to His voice according to everything that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. This is a description of national repentance. We're going to suffer. We're going to take it to heart. And we're going to return to God, all of us, with all our heart and with all our soul. And it's important to note we're in the season for repentance. Here's a description of repentance. Repentance means to return to God. The famous teaching of the Talmud says repentance is great because it arrives all the way to the holy throne of glory, to the throne of God. When a person sins... They're creating barriers between them and God and they are distancing themselves from God. Whereas when they repent, repentance is knocking down those barriers. It's shattering the things that separate us from God and restoring us to our most natural state of being in close proximity to God. Repentance is great because it brings a person all the way back to the throne of glory. So what happens after the Jewish people have this arousal of national repentance, then Hashem your God will bring back your captivity and have mercy upon you and he'll return and gather you in from amongst all the people to which Hashem your God has scattered you. If your are dispersed will be at the ends of heaven, from there Hashem your God will gather you in. From there he will take you. Hashem your God will bring you to the land that your forefathers possessed and you shall possess it. He will do good to you, make you more numerous than your forefathers. Hashem your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. To love Hashem your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It's an amazing description here of this restoration of the Jewish people. We're in exile. Things are going bad. We're following the bad examples of the people that we're surrounded with. We sin. We get punished. We suffer. We get dislocated. We're unstable. And we take the lesson to heart. And we decide it's time for us to return to where we came from to go back to our origins to return to Hashem our God. And we take the message home and the Almighty is going to reciprocate that sentiment. He's going to bring us back. He's going to gather us from amongst all the nations that we're scattered in. We could be at the other ends of the heaven. God's going to take us back, bring us back to the land of Israel, bring us back to the land that our forefathers possessed and prepare us for the destiny of of our nation. It's an interesting description here of, of what happens here. God is going to circumcise our heart. There's a very deep point here. Our heart is a euphemism for our soul. The soul is really the key for our connection to God. The problem is it's covered. Like we said, there's barriers separating us, separating our soul, separating our heart from God. What's God gonna do? God's going to circumcise our heart. He's going to remove the barriers that are blockading our connection to God. And we're going to be restored to our natural state of being close to God. There's a very powerful Ramban here where he talks about what's going to change in messianic times. Today, of course, we believe that everyone has free will you want to be righteous, you want to be a tzaddik, you can be righteous. You want to be a sinner, you could choose that as well. That is the natural state of the world today, where everyone has the decision-making capacity to decide what kind of life to pursue. However, in the times of the messianic era, choosing good will be natural. We're not going to desire the things that are not helpful for us, the things that are sinful for us, the things that are harmful to our soul, All that's going to be not desirable at all. We're going to be restored to the level, to the stature of Adam before his sin, a state in which he was not desirous at all for good and bad. There was no internal conflict. And that's going to be our status in the Messianic era. And that is described here in the verse as the circumcision of the heart because lusts and desires and the interest in doing sin, it's akin to a foreskin on our heart, and that's going to be removed in the Messianic era. And again, like the Rabban said earlier, the entire description here of what's going on here is a prophecy of the future era of the Messianic times. Today, of course, we have desires. Today, of course, we have conflict. Today, we have to choose between good and bad, between life and death. But in the future, there's going to be a time after our hearts are circumcised, there's going to be a time where we're not going to have that same conflict because we're going to naturally seek only good. And in those days, the verse continues, God is going to make all the curses fall upon our enemies. We're going to return and listen to his voice. We're going to do all his commandments. We're going to receive tremendous blessing in our children, in our livestock, in our land, God will rejoice over you as he rejoiced over our forefathers, provided that we listen to his voice, observe his commandments. We're going to be living in that idyllic utopia. And Moshe continues by telling the Jewish people, for this commandment that I command you today, it's not hidden from you, it's not distant, it's not in the heavens that you may say, how can I go up to the heavens to get it, to perform it, to listen to it? It's not across the sea that would make us potentially say, who's going to cross over to the sea and take it to us so we could do it and listen to it. Rather, the matter is very near to you, in your mouth and in your heart, to perform it. Moshe is comforting the Jewish people by telling them that this commandment is very close to us. It's not in the heavens, it's not across the sea. It's in our mouth and it's in our heart to perform it. What exactly is he talking about? Which commandment is he talking about? So Rashi and the Ramban, they have a disagreement. Rashi says it's referring to Torah, to the study of Torah. The Rabban, he explains that now it's referring to repentance, That's as a continuation of the previous theme, that in the event that we do repent, in the event that we have this national reckoning of returning back to God, everything good is going to happen to us. We're going to be gathered in from all the nations. We're going to go back to the land of Israel. We're going to fulfill our destiny. And don't think it's so difficult. No, it's actually exceedingly easy for us to do that. It's in our mouth, it's in our hearts to perform them. The obvious question is, repentance doesn't seem to be easy at all. Are we really so close to this mitzvah? Year after year, during these times, during the high holidays, it seems like we find ourselves in the same situation, repenting for the same sins that we did in previous years. What is the meaning of this verse here? That it's so easy for us to perform them? It's in our mouth, it's in our hearts, it's not it's not difficult, and that refers to repentance. I think there's a deep insight over here. When someone repents, they're not transforming themselves into a new entity that hitherto has not existed. Repentance is returning someone to the way it always was. Repentance is something very natural. We are a soul. Our soul is is enveloped by a body. Our sages tell us that's like a garment to our soul. Who we really are is our soul. Where does the soul come from? What's its origin? Its origins from heaven. Its origin is closeness to God. Going back to that state is just restoring ourselves to the natural state of our soul, to the state that our soul is most comfortable in. It's almost like we're a prodigal son who after years of being far away from his father, returns home. Repentance is returning the soul to its place of origin, to its place of true comfort. And my grandfather, blessed memory, he suggested that really Rashi and Rabban are not arguing. Rashi says that this mitzvah he's talking about is Torah study, and the Rabban explains that it's talking about repentance. Really, Torah study and repentance... Both of them are about restoring our state of closeness to God. The objective of Torah study is to make a person close to God. The objective of repentance is to make a person close to God. Both of them are our natural state. Both of them are close. And though they seem like they're distant, though they seem difficult, that is part of the fiction spun by our... Yetzirah. There's a famous teaching in the Talmud. The Talmud says that before a child's born, the child knows all of Torah. But as they're born, they forget it all instantly. The insight behind that is that before someone comes to this world, they have not yet been influenced by the Yitzhahara. And consequently, their soul is in a state of, of unadulterated purity. And the soul in that state knows all of Torah innately, even without being taught. The soul is close to God. The soul is replete. It's bursting with Torah. And when we repent and we study Torah, we're actually going back to a more natural state than the one that we are born into. The parsha ends. Moshe places before the Jewish people the two options that they have before them. See, I have placed before you today the life and the good and the death and the evil. There's two choices. There's only two choices. There's the good, there's life, and there's death, and there is evil. What kind of life do you want to live? What kind of priorities do you want to have? Are you going to live your life as a soul? Giving your soul life in this world and ensuring that it has continuity and vitality in the natural world. Our Sadists tell us that a righteous person is alive even after they pass. By connecting someone to Torah, they're connected to the root of all goodness, to the root of all life. And even after their body and soul have separated, their soul still is influenced by the life and the vitality of the Torah that it absorbed. Whereas someone who is wicked... Says the Talmud, even when they are alive, they are truly dead. That's the choice that Moshe presents to people. What kind of life do you want to live? I place before you the life and the good and the death and the evil. What is the life that which I commanded you today to love Hashem your God, to walk in His ways, to observe His commandments, His decrees, and His ordinances? Then you will live and you will multiply. Good equals life. But if your heart will stray and you will not listen, and you are led astray. And you prostrate yourself to the gods of others and you serve them. If you choose the other option, I will tell you today that you will surely be lost. You will not lengthen your days. If you choose the evil, you are in effect choosing death. And Moshe ends his message. I call heaven and earth today to bear witness against you. I have placed life and death before you. Blessing and curse. And you shall choose life so that you will live, you and your offspring, to love Hashem your God, to listen to His voice, and to cleave to Him, for He is your life and the length of your days, to dwell upon the land that Hashem swore to your forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. The heavens and the earth are witnesses to this offer. Do you want the good? Do you want the life? Or are you going to make the unfortunate decision to choose the evil and consequently to choose death? Rashi tells us the heaven and earth are there, they're witnesses, they're permanent witnesses. The heaven and earth were there when Moses spoke to the Jewish people 3,300 years ago. They're here today and they're still standing witness that we were warned fair and square, clearly and simply and succinctly that we had this choice before us and our choices and the consequences of the choices are attested to by the heaven and earth. Rashi adds that there's a lesson that we could take from the heaven and earth. The Almighty is telling us, look at the heaven. Look at the earth. Did they change their practices? Did they not obey the will of God? Every day, you look towards the east, and the sun rises and gives light and gives warmth to the whole world. Look at the earth. God created the earth to be there to aid us. You plant. And you know what? Year after year, season after season, the earth obliges. Did you ever plant and nothing grew? Did you ever plant wheat and barley grew? The earth obeys my instruction. The heaven does too. And you know what? If they obey God's instruction, do they get reward? No. If they sin, do they get punished? No. Nevertheless, they didn't change. You, you, God tells the Jewish people, if you do good, you get reward. If you sin, you get punished. All the more so should you abide, should you obey to the will of God. The Ramban, he reminds us that at the beginning of Deuteronomy, in chapter 4, Moshe had again called the heaven and earth to stand witness to his promise that the Jewish people will surely be destroyed if they follow the ways of idolaters. And here... These very same witnesses, at the end of Moshe's message, like witnesses brought in to sign at the end of the document, they are brought in again to finish up or to to, to bear witness for the end of Moshe's promise for his reminder to the Jewish people that they have two options. They have goodness and they have life. They have death and they have evil. And Moshe warned them to choose life. Parsha Vayelech is the third to last Parsha in the Torah. It is also the shortest Parsha in the Torah with only 30 verses, and it contains the final two of the 613 mitzvos of the Torah. And we're right now on the final day of Moshe's life, and this Parsha and the two that follow are going to detail what happens on this very important day. The Parsha begins, Moses went and spoke these words to all of Israel. He said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in, for Hashem has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. Hashem your God, he will cross before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall possess them. Joshua, he shall cross over before you as Hashem had spoken. The Rabbin explains that Moses was about to part from the nation, and therefore all the meetings, all the gatherings that happened in last week's parasha were done In Moses' home turf, i.e. in the Levite camp, but now he's about to take leave from the nation and therefore he travels, he goes, he went to the Israelite camp to honor them and to part from them with honor. Like you have someone who goes to visit their friend and then they're about to leave. So when they take leave, they go visit their host and they ask for permission, so to speak, to be able to leave. Similarly, Moses is about to leave the nation, and therefore he goes over to them, he goes to their home, and he gives over his final message, and he asks, so to speak, for permission to leave. Now, we find out that he's 120 years old to the day. He was born on the seventh day of Adar, and he is going to pass away on that very same day, 120 years later. And the Talmud tells us that God ensures that the righteous, they live out their years and their months and the days, and therefore the righteous people, they actually pass away on their birthday. And in fact, it's a pattern. The Torah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're all passing away on their birthday. And I think the simple understanding behind this is that the people who are righteous at this caliber, they're so perfect, and thus the perfection is even reflected in their years and the time that they get allotted in this world, they maximize everything and thus they're given a certain amount of years and they fulfill those years to completion. But maybe on a little bit of a deeper level, we know the Talmud tells us that people are allotted a certain amount of time to live on this earth, but they could lose days, years and months as a result of sin. And maybe we can even speculate. The Talmud tells us that of the 613 mitzvot in the Torah, 248 of them are positive mitzvot, i.e. the Torah telling us what we must do. And 365 of them are negative mitzvot, prohibitions, restrictions, transgressions, what we should not do. And the Talmud tells us that these numbers are not random. The 248 positive mitzvot correspond to, to the amount of limbs and organs that you have in your body, and the 365 negative mitzvos correspond to the amount of sinews, muscles, tendons that you have in your body. And the idea being that when someone does all 613 mitzvos, when they achieve completion in the spiritual guidelines of the Torah, then they're upgrading, so to speak, their spiritual avatar, so to speak, the spiritual replica of their body, just like their body has 613 parts, so do their soul has 613 parts, and they achieve perfection in all aspects. They become well-rounded as a spiritual entity, and thus as a result of that, that spiritual entity can have continuity even after they die. It's a very advanced idea, but it's ubiquitous in, in Jewish philosophy, Now, the Talmud tells us another point. The Talmud says that the 365 negative mitzvot correspond to the amount of days in the year. Each day in the year, in the solar year, has a mitzvah that corresponds to it, and thus a full year, a full 365-day calendar year, will correspond to all the negative mitzvot in the Torah. Maybe we could speculate. You know, the Talmud is clear that not only does someone... Who is righteous, they live out the months of the year, but they don't miss out a single day. Maybe we could speculate that the connection is that when someone is righteous, they don't do any of the sins and thus they don't have any of those 365 days deducted from the year and the yearly total that they are assigned. Perhaps people are assigned a certain amount of years, and if they don't devolve into the ways of sin, then invariably they'll die on their birthday because there's not going to be any of the 365 sins that are going to diminish from the 365 days of the years that they are allotted. Now, Moshe is no longer the leader of the people. He tells the nation, I can no longer go out and come in. I can't be the leader because Hashem said to me, you're not going to cross, you're not going to be the leader. Now it's going to be given over to Joshua. Rashi tells us, But this does not mean that Moshe, he began to atrophy. He began to weaken. No, he was still as sharp as he was on day one, but he no longer had the permission. He no longer had the mandate from God that you're the leader. It was taken away from him and it was given to Joshua. And I think this is a definition of Jewish leadership. To be the leader, you have to be appointed by God. Moses was appointed by God and thus he became the leader and thus he had that mandate and now, on the final day of his life, God takes away that mandate and hands it over to Joshua, even in moses' lifetime and Of course, there's many examples of this throughout Jewish literature. Maybe a great example of this is Samuel and Saul Saul's the first king of Israel, and Samuel the prophet anoints him. He pours the oil in his head and says, "You're the king of Jewish people. God decided you're the king." but then Saul sinned and God tells Samuel, okay, we have to find a new king. Saul is still on the throne. Saul is still nominally, titularly the head of the Jewish people. He is still the monarch. But in God's eyes, Saul is no longer the monarch. He's been deposed by God. Yes, the people may think he's king, but God recognizes that he's not. And of course, Samuel goes and finds a successor, and that is David. So we have this period where the people... And Saul himself, they assume that Saul is the king. But of course, in truth, in reality, that reign has been given over to David. If you ask the people over here on the day of Moses' passing, who's the leader of the Jewish people? They probably would have said Moses. He's been the leader yesterday. He's been the leader for 40 years. And why would that change? And here Moses is revealing to us and revealing to them that, no, I am no longer the leader. That has been taken away from me and been handed over to Joshua. And I would say maybe on a a broader point, this does not only apply to the leader of the Jewish people to be the king, this applies to any position of authority, any position of leadership, any role that a person plays, we believe that that stems from God manipulating the events to ensure that they're assigned to a certain role. We believe that the Almighty placed us on this planet to achieve a certain goal. We're here on a mission. We don't know what the mission is necessarily. We could try to guess, and you would guess by looking at the various tools that the Almighty gave you, because the tools are going to be tailored. They're going to parallel mirror the particular message, the particular mission that you are entrusted with. But we also believe that the Almighty is going to manipulate the events and the circumstances of your life to ensure that you're given ample opportunity to take whatever mission is that you were given. Of course, some people have a much bigger mission, some have a smaller mission, but everyone has a responsibility that they have to do, and we believe that the Almighty is there putting his proverbial thumb on the scale and ensuring that every person is directed to whatever mission, whatever responsibility, whatever requirement they need to do, making sure that the path is paved for them. We say every morning, a blessing to God, (laughs) HaMechin Mitzadei Gaver, who prepares the footsteps of man. We're here on a mission. We're here to accomplish something in our journey. And the Almighty prepares our footsteps to ensure that whatever it is that we're supposed to accomplish, we are given all the tools and all the circumstances to do that. Moshe was the leader. And now God says, okay, you've done your mission. The leadership mandate's been taken away and now it belongs to Joshua. And he tells them also that I'm 120 years old old today. So simply put, what that means is that he's going to pass away today, and therefore he's no longer the leader. There's an interesting Ramban here. The Ramban tells us that there's a connection between his age, his advanced age, and his decline in leadership. The Ramban explains that what Moshe is telling the Jewish people, I'm 120 years old today. He's comforting them by telling them, I'm old. I'm less useful than it was before. I've done my share. My prime is behind me. I'm not useful anymore as a leader. And then he reminds them, even when I was the leader, quote unquote, even when I was at the helm leading the people, in truth, it was God who was really leading you. God was really the leader. I was just the emissary. And therefore, you should be comforted to know that you're in good hands after I passed. I think this is a very interesting Ramban. It's a very pragmatic idea. You know, we think of the Jewish people; they're surrounded by prophecy, they're surrounded by miracles, and the Ramban's explaining. You know, they have this leader who's been tending to them like a mother tends to a child, to a suckling infant, for forty years, and quite naturally, they're terrified. What's going to be with us? Yes, of course, Joshua is a worthy successor, but is he a successor to Moses? Who could replace? Moses, who could possibly fill those shoes? And Moses is comforting them. He says, I'm, I'm old. I'm not in my prime anymore. Don't worry about it. You'll be okay. The Almighty who was with me, who made my leadership reign so successful, he'll be with Joshua. Don't worry. You'll be in good hands. And there's another interesting Rashi here. Rashi tells us, that Moses actually forgot the Torah and that's why he was disabled as a leader. It's a very puzzling idea here. Rashi is telling us that the wellsprings of Torah and wisdom and insight were closed up, were sealed up from Moses. It's a little bit troubling. You know, Moses, the greatest man that ever lived, the greatest leader we've ever had, And here we find out that on the last day of his life, he cannot be the leader anymore. He's been disabled. He's been disqualified as a leader because he forgot the Torah. What did Moses do to warrant such a punishment, so to speak, to lose access to the Torah? We don't see any sin that he did now that would warrant such punishment. Why indeed did Moses forget the Torah or were the wellsprings of Torah closed up to him? So there's an interesting Ramban here. Ramban quotes this, uh, this Talmud that Rashi quotes as well. And he adds that this was a miracle. Miraculously, the wellsprings of wisdom that were open to Moses were closed up. Why was there a need for such a miracle? So that he would not object to the leadership being transferred over to Joshua. He wouldn't be worried. He wouldn't be concerned. He wouldn't think that he had a greater aptitude to lead the nation more than Joshua. No. He is reminded of his own feebleness, of his own weakness by having the wellsprings of Torah closed up before him. And now he can feel more comfortable, more at ease, giving over the reign to Joshua. Now, if you read the Talmud that Rashi and the Rabban quote, if you read it quite critically, you'll notice a very deep point. It doesn't say that Moses was rendered incapable of Torah. Rather, what it says is that the wellsprings of wisdom themselves were closed up. It's not like Moses, his receptors were rendered dysfunctional. The wellsprings themselves, the Torah itself, dried up. They were closed up. Moses was exactly the same way he was previous. Identical to the way he was yesterday, open, wide, ready for Torah, but the wellsprings of Torah themselves dried up, they closed up for him. Now Moses in the Midrash is compared to an oceanside cave. And the way the Midrash explains that if you have a cave right next to the ocean and the ocean rises a little bit, invariably the cave will be filled up with water when the tide rises. Moses remained this Oceanside cave, this open heart to absorb Torah, but the waters, miraculously, they closed up themselves in order to clear the way for Joshua. And again, Moshe is comforting the nation. God, he will cross over before you. He always was the leader and he's going to be the leader even in the future. He's going to destroy these nations before you. You're going to possess them. You'll have another leader. Joshua, he shall cross over before you as Hashem had spoken. Again, he's reminding them that when he was the leader, the figurehead, so to speak, it was truly God who was in charge. He was God's emissary. God was the leader. And now that Joshua is taking over, he too is going to be an emissary of God, and therefore there is no need to worry. Hashem will do to them, as did the Sichon and Og, all the kings on the east bank of the Jordan were vanquished by God, that will happen to the kings on the west bank of the Jordan as well, don't be scared, be courageous, be strong, don't be afraid, don't be broken, for Hashem your God, it is he who goes before you, he will not release you, nor will he forsake you, that's the very powerful message that Moshe shares to the nation, and then he calls over Joshua, Moshe summoned Joshua, and said to him, before the eyes of all of Israel, everyone's witnessing this transfer of power between Moses to Joshua. And he tells him, be strong and courageous, for you shall come with this people to the land that Hashem swore to their forefathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. Hashem, it is he who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not release you, nor will he forsake you. Don't be afraid and don't be dismayed. Just as... The nation needed to be comforted with the passing of Moses. Joshua too had to know that he has the goods, he has the ability because God will be with him. Don't be afraid to take on this tremendous responsibility of leading the nation into the land, conquering it. Don't be afraid. God will be with you. He won't forsake you. He won't release you. You'll be okay. It's very interesting Rashi here. Rashi tells us, Reading the verse very critically, it says, For you shall come with this people to the land that Hashem swore to their forefathers. You're going to be the leader, but you're going to come with the people. Whereas in verse 23, so in a few verses, there's going to be a dialogue between God and Joshua. And God will tell Joshua a very similar message, but he doesn't say, You shall come with the people. He says to him, you shall bring the people into the land. And Rashi tells us that there's a little bit of a disagreement between God and Moses regarding the leadership structure of Joshua. Moses told Joshua, you're going to come with the people. When Moses is in effect telling Joshua, you're going to have lieutenants. You're going to have the elders of the generation. They're going to be with you. Follow their advice heed their counsel, and therefore you'll come with them. You're not going to be the only leader. You're going to be with everyone else. It's going to be almost a leadership by committee or by consensus. That's what Moshe told Joshua. Whereas God, God tells Joshua, you're going to bring them. You're going to be the leader. If they don't want to come, you hit them over the head. There's only one leader. There's only one spokesman for the nation, for the generation, and there aren't two. It's not going to be a leadership by committee, by consensus, you and the elders. No, it's going to be an autocracy. You're in charge, you alone, and there is no one else with you. You're the sole leader. And the commentaries explain that Moses and God are really are not arguing. Really, these two mandates are complementary. Moses is advising Joshua to seek their guidance, to seek the advice, to seek the counsel of the elders, and God reminds him. Ultimately, you are the sole leader of the nation. You have to make the final call. Moses wrote this Torah and gave it to the Kohanim, to the Levites, to the bearers of the Ark of the Covenant of Hashem, and to all the elders of Israel. Moses is now giving out written copies of the Torah. He begins initially by giving a copy of the Torah to the Levites. The Ramban stresses that this is a copy of the entire Torah from the first word of Genesis to the final word To the eyes of all of Israel, the final words of Deuteronomy. And the Midrash describes how the rest of the tribes, they started complaining. Why is Moses giving to the members of the Levites? What about us? And ultimately, Moses gave one scroll to each tribe, a total of 13 scrolls that were written on the final day of his life. Now, incidentally, these scrolls were used as the scroll from which all other scrolls were copied. So if you have a Torah scroll today, it's a copy of 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 one of those scrolls that Moses wrote on the final day of his life. And then Moses commands the nation with the first mitzvah of the two we're going to read about in this partial. And that's the mitzvah of Hakel. That's the mitzvah where at the end of a Shemitah cycle, so at the end of a seven-year cycle, On the second day of Sukkot, the first intermediate day, the whole nation gathers in Jerusalem or wherever the capital, the epicenter of the Jewish people is. And the king, he takes the Torah and he reads many parts of Deuteronomy to the whole nation. Moses commanded them saying that at the end of the seven years, at the time of the sabbatical year, during the circus festival, when all Israel comes to appear before Hashem, your God, in the place that he will choose. You shall read this Torah before all of Israel in their ears. Gather together the people, the men, the women, and the small children, and your stranger who is in your cities, so that they will hear, and so they will learn, and so they shall fear Hashem, your God, and be careful to perform all the words of this Torah. And their children who do not know, they shall hear and they shall learn to fear Hashem, your God, all the days that you live in the land to which you are crossing the Jordan to possess it. So this is the mitzvah of Hakel, the whole nation gathering together, a momentous gathering, a momentous festival, and it's done once every seven years. The king reads the book of Deuteronomy, much of the book of Deuteronomy in the temple on this first day of the intermediate days of the festival of Sukkot. Now the Rambam in the laws of Chagiga, he gives us some more details about how this was done on the night following the first festival day of Sukkot, so that's the eve of the second day of the first intermediate day, the beginning of the intermediate days of the eighth year of a Shemitah cycle, the king reads in the ears of the whole nation. It is done in one particular chamber of the temple, and he would read, from the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy until the end of the first paragraph of the Shema, which is in chapter 6, and then he steps to chapter 11 and reads the second paragraph of the Shema, and then he steps to chapter 14 and reads from chapter 14, verse 22, all the way through chapter 28, verse 69, which is the end of the admonition the portion that reminds us of the consequences of forgetting the Torah, disobeying it, and going astray. How would they do it? So the Ram tells us they would take trumpets and they would blow the trumpets to herald this momentous ceremony throughout the whole Jerusalem. And that way everyone would gather and they would bring a large pedestal of wood And they would make it right in the middle, right in the center of this particular chamber of the temple. And the king would ascend and sit on that pedestal so that way everyone should hear when he reads from the Torah. And all the people who joined the pilgrimage who were in Jerusalem for the festival, they could gather around and listen. And then you would have the chazan, the crier of the Sanhedrin of the Supreme Court, he would take the Torah scroll and he would hand it to the chief justice and the chief justice would hand it to the vice high priest and the vice high priest would give it to the high priest and the high priest would give it to the king and that was done in order to augment the splendor and the glory of Torah and of this process in the eyes of the onlookers. The king would accept the Torah And he had the option to stand or to sit when he read it. But it would be better if he would stand. He makes the blessing and he reads these portions. And when he's done and he rolls up the Torah, he makes the blessings that you say after you get an Aliyah, after you read from the Torah. And he adds seven special blessings after he is done. And the rationale for this mitzvah that Sefer Chenech tells us is very powerful What he tells us is that the essence of our nation is Torah. What distinguishes our nation from any other nation? Why do we merit to have the close connection with God, the stamped ticket to the afterlife, to eternity? Why do we have this distinction? It's because of Torah. And therefore, because this is the essence of our nation, it is appropriate that we gather together once in a while, once maybe every seven years, to go hear it, to hear what the Torah says, so that the words of Torah should be heard throughout the whole nation, the men, the women, the children, everyone should say, wow, what are we doing here? What, are the, what is the meaning behind this amazing get-together? And the answer is going to be, we came to hear the Torah. This is our essence. This is our splendor. This is what makes us special. And as a result of that, everyone's going to praise the greatness of Torah and its value and its glory and will insert in their heart a desire to study. And with that desire to study, they're going to connect to God and they will merit the goodness. It's such a momentous festival of Torah that it's going to instill and ingrain within the hearts of everyone who participates a tremendous love and connection to God And to his Torah. And Rashi, quoting from our sages in the Talmud, points out that the men, of course, come. They come to study. The women come as well. Even though they're not obligated to study Torah, they come to listen, to participate. But what about the small children? Why do you bring the small children to this grand ceremony of Hakel? Says Rashi, quoting from the Talmud, book of Hadidah, page 3b, to give reward to those who bring them. Indeed, the children themselves, they don't understand what's going on. They don't have the intellect, the insight, the wisdom, the knowledge to be able to really absorb what's happening here. But you know what? There is merit to those who bring them and therefore that's why the children participate in this ceremony. The Ramban, he adds another point. He says, yes, the children won't understand the content of what the king is reading of the book of Deuteronomy. However, they will notice that something is amiss, and they'll start asking questions, and they'll start probing, and it will implant in their heart something very special happened here. And when they get older, it'll trickle in. The message will be digested and absorbed And they will gain tremendous benefit from being privy to this amazing experience. Maybe we could even add, you know, you go to a sports game and you see babies with little micro jerseys and little ear protectors. And the parents from a very early age are trying to instill within them a love for their team. We have this idea of multi-generational sports fans, the idea of ingraining a love for a certain team or certain sports into a child when they're young. Even though they don't understand the rules of the game, they don't understand what it means and why does this team have blue jerseys and this team have green ones. It doesn't, it doesn't register to them. But from a very early age, when they're beginning to form as, as a being, as a person, you already instill with them a love for whatever it is that you truly cherish. And we truly cherish Torah. And therefore the children... They don't understand what's happening, but they have to be there at this momentous gathering. And in addition, I read an amazing insight from Rabbi Rocham about the power of trying to influence someone, both positively and negatively. There is a law in the Torah that talks about someone who tries to influence someone to do idolatry. And this is one of the worst things you could do, try to influence someone to do idolatry, to influence someone to follow the ways of the pagans, and to deviate away from God. And this person is treated the most harshly of any sinner in the Torah. Even worse than someone who actually does idolatry is someone who tries to influence others to go do idolatry. And importantly, even if their influence does not bear fruit, even if the person is not convinced, does not follow the ways of the idolaters, Nevertheless, the person who tried to instigate that, the person who tried to entice someone else to follow the, idol- the idolatry, that person is treated very harshly and it's a capital offense. And we know that whatever God does harshly, whatever punishment that God dispenses, the reward for the parallel deed is always amplified 500 times. So, for example, God punishes sinners up to four generations, and thus we know that God rewards the righteous up to 2,000 generations. Why? Because it's 500 times greater, the reward, than the punishment. And here we see an amazing idea. Someone tries to influence someone negatively. They're treated very harshly. We're told not to have pity on them and not to have mercy on them, and we don't try to find acquittal and exculpation for them, they did something so horrific, so unconscionable, so inexcusable that there's no mercy for them, there's no pity for them. Even if their attempts at influencing bore no fruit, still they're treated very harshly. Well, what if someone tries to influence someone else for the positive? Well, you would say that To the degree that someone tries to influence someone negatively is punished severely. 500 times greater than that if someone tries to influence someone else positively. And you know what? Just as when someone tries to influence someone negatively, they're treated very harshly regardless of whether or not their influence was successful. Similarly, we would say that when someone tries to influence someone positively, even if their efforts were inefficacious, nevertheless, they are rewarded very handsomely 500 times more than the negative person is punished. The person tries to influence positively as a reward, even if the person is not influenced. You bring a child, you bring him to the temple, you bring him to participate in this once every seven year celebration of Torah, of remembering what we stand for as a nation. The child, not influenced. They're too small, they're too young, they're too undeveloped to be able to recognize what's happening here. But you know what? Bring the children anyhow. And why, says the Talmud, to give reward to those who bring them. You try to influence them positively, even if it does not yield fruit, you're going to have tremendous reward because you try to influence someone positively. And I think this is, More broadly speaking, today we don't have hakel because we don't have a temple. Please, God, it'll be built speedily. We're about to have the celebration together on the first day of the intermediate days of every seventh year of the cycle. But the principle remains that if we try to influence others, even if, you know, there are sinners and they're not impressionable and we try to influence them, it doesn't work and... We try harder and nothing actually penetrates. They're not taking home the message. They're not absorbing the lessons. And we feel like we've done nothing. We feel like our efforts are for naught. We feel like we wasted our time. And here we see the power of attempting to influence someone. Even if it doesn't yield fruit, it's the most powerful thing you could do because you're trying to influence someone to the good. And we know... That influence someone or trying to influence someone for the bad is the worst thing and thus 500 times greater than that is the reward for trying, even if you're only trying to influence someone for the positive. What a powerful insight from Rebbe Yerachim about this idea. And then Moses is instructed to summon Joshua and both of them to come together to the tent of meeting and... God tells Moses, I'm going to instruct him. There's going to be a transfer here, a visceral, vivid illustration of the fact that the leadership has been handed over from Moses to Joshua. Both of them are going to go to the tent of meeting, the place where Moses usually speaks to God and God's going to speak to Joshua. So Moses and Joshua, they went, they stood at the tent of meeting, God appeared to them and he spoke to them and he gave them some troubling predictions. Hashem said to Moses, behold, you're going to die and the people will forsake me. They're going to annul the covenant that I sealed with them. I'm going to get angry at them. I'm going to forsake them. I'm going to conceal my face from them. They'll become prey, many evils and distresses they'll encounter, but then they're going to repent. They're going to say, is it not because God is not in my midst that all these evils have become upon me? But I will surely have concealed my face on that day because of all the evil that it did, for it had turned to the gods of others. So there's a few interesting things here. First of all, the idea of God covering his eyes, and as a result of that, the people getting punished. So on a technical level, what this means is that God's not going to actively punish them. He's going to passively punish them, so to speak, by withholding his eyes. What that means is that without God intervening, without God actively ensuring that things are okay for us, the default is that we're suffering. It's only because God looks at us, so to speak. He shines his visage at us. He looks at us with his countenance. He cares about us. He takes an interest in us and he takes steps to make sure that things go well for us That's the only way that we could avoid suffering. But God says, you know what? In the event that they turn away from me, I will respond in kind. I will turn away from them. And to the degree that the nation turns away from me, I will turn away from them. And the further I am, so to speak, facing away from them, the more they're on their own and the more vulnerable they are. And what happens? All kinds of evils and distresses will encounter it, not because of me, on an active way, but because me on a passive way, because I'm not going to be there to thwart, to swat away the dangers and the suffering and the pain that I would have if I was facing them. And it's interesting. Even after the nation seems like they're repenting, they're going to say, this is verse 17, it will say on that day, is it not because my God is not in my midst that all these evils have come upon me? They're going to take the message, they're going to recognize that the reason why they're being punished because God's not with them. Yet you read verse 18, but I will surely have concealed my face on that day because of all of the evil that it did. So the Rabban asks the question, he says, wait a minute, even after they repented in verse 17, it seems like they're still being punished in verse 18. So the Rabban tells us that this is an incomplete repentance. They're only showing regret They're only acknowledging that they're guilty, but they're not truly repenting. And therefore, God does not fully reveal his face to them. They're still vulnerable. The Hasidic masters, they say that actually in verse 17, not only is this not an incomplete repentance, there's something wrong with this message. They say, the Jewish people say, after they suffer, is it not because my God is not in my midst that all these evils have come upon me? We have to realize, as a nation, God is always with us even when we're suffering. In fact, the verse tells us, in Psalms 91, God is with us when we're suffering. Similarly, the verse in Psalm tells us, even when I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to be scared because you are with me. What happens When someone fails to recognize that, they say, God is not in my midst. When they do that, that in itself, not only is not an incomplete repentance, it's a sin because they are failing to recognize the essence of our nation, that our nation, no matter how far we may be from God, God is still with us and he wants to hear from us and he wants to turn his face towards us and to treat us with the pleasant countenance of God, with his caring, with his love, with his compassion for our nation. After God conveys this message to Moses and to Joshua, he instructs them to write down this song. This is going to be the third song that we encounter in the Torah. Of course, there was the song at the sea. There was the song of Miriam in the book of Numbers. And now we're going to have the final song, the song that's going to encompass much of next week's parsha, the song of Hazinu. Which is going to be an overview of Jewish history, like a condensed version of all the good things that will happen to us and all the bad things that will will happen to us, depending upon which of the two paths that are laid out before us we choose to go down. So now God tells Moses and Aaron, write this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel, place it in their mouth so that this song shall be for me a witness against the Jewish people. This song is going to serve testimony that the Jewish people knew exactly what they were getting into when they accepted this relationship with God and therefore the song itself is going to be a witness against the Jewish people in the event that they stray and they're punished. They cannot say we weren't warned. We have the song here to serve as testimony for. And of course, the song we're not going to read this week. We're going to read it next week. Now, in addition, the Talmud tells us that this verse, verse 19, is actually the source of the final mitzvah of the Torah, and that is to write a Torah scroll. So even though God ostensibly is speaking to Moses and Joshua to write down this song, really he's speaking to us as well to write down the song of Ha'azinu, which is part of the Torah. And ergo, we know that we're supposed to write down the whole Torah. Each one of us should have a copy of the Torah. If it's a whole Torah scroll, that would be great. Otherwise, at a minimum, we should have a copy of the Chumash, a copy of the Pentateuch, a copy of the five books of Moses, to be able to fulfill this mitzvah. And the Raman tells us, the way he explains this this verse, is that it's telling us to write down the song. And the song, of course, is part of the whole Torah. And you can't just write one portion of the Torah. And therefore, you have to write the whole Torah. Now, the commentators ask the obvious question. Maybe the mitzvah is for us to write down just this song, just the Song of Hazin the Song that we're going to read next week. How does the Rambam know? How does the Talmud know that we're supposed to write the entire Torah that has within it the song as well? You have a mezuzah. Mezuzah on every Jewish doorpost has within it a section of the Torah. And it's just one section – the first two paragraphs of the Shema, and it doesn't have the rest of the Torah. So we see, obviously, a precedent for the fact that you don't need to write the whole Torah every time you write one portion of the Torah. Similarly with tefillin. In the tefillin, there's the tefillin of the head have, has four compartments, that each one of them has a scroll that contains within it a portion of the Torah. And the one on the arm is one scroll that contains those four portions. But again, that's evidence that you don't need to write the whole Torah, just those portions. So maybe... This mitzvah of writing of the song includes only the song. So there's many answers to this question. I saw one answer in particular that the song is supposed to act as a witness upon the Jewish people to serve as a description of the consequences for their errant behavior. And therefore, if you just have the song and you don't have the rest of the Torah, it won't be a very useful witness because the song itself is exhorting us to not disobey the Torah. And if we just have the song, we don't know what the Torah is. If that's not part of the evidence, if that's not in evidence, then the song is almost defanged as a witness, and consequently, we have to have it all. Now, in addition, this verse is a very interesting verse. The commentaries note that this is a shift in how the Torah was given. So read the verse again, verse 19. So now write this song and teach it, to the children of Israel. So what happens first? First you write it and only subsequently you teach it. We know that here Moses at the end of his life he's going to give the Jewish people copies of the Torah. But for the preceding 40 years Moshe was teaching the Jewish people the Torah but he wasn't giving them written versions of it. And even though the Talmud in the book of Gittin page 60a has two opinions as to how the written Torah is written, was written. Was it written In you know, piecemeal, piece by piece, or was it written all at the end? I.e., at the end of Moshe's life. At the end of Deuteronomy, he wrote the whole thing. But regardless, everyone agrees the Jewish people did not get written copies of the Torah until the very end of Moshe's life, the very end of the 40 years of the Jewish people's sojourn in the wilderness. So when they were studying Torah, they were studying Torah orally. Moshe was telling Jewish people what to do, and they were reviewing it, and this was all done orally. And only subsequently did they get it in the written version, the written Torah. And here we see that there's a change. Moshe is being told, write down and then teach. The format that we follow today, it's this format, that we first read the written Torah and we try to extrapolate from the Torah to draw out from the Torah what the insights are. And of course, that's developed and explicated in the Talmud to obviously perfection. But again, here we see a shift. Previously, it was done oral and only subsequently written. And here it's going to be changed. And in fact, the commentaries note that the verse begins, so now, now, unlike previously, you're going to write the song and then you're going to teach it. And then God continues to tell Moses and Aaron, for I shall bring them to the land that sword to the forefathers, which flows with milk and honey. They're going to turn away from God and go follow the gods of others. And it shall be that when many of the evils and the distresses come upon it, then this song that we're about to write, it's going to serve as a witness. For it shall not be forgotten from the mouth of its offspring, for I know its inclination, when it does today before I bring them to the land that I have sworn. God is telling us, this is an idea that we've spoken about in the past, that the Torah will never be forgotten from the Jewish people. Rashi tells us, behold, this is a promise to the Jewish people that they won't at least completely forget the Torah from their generations, from their descendants. However, as a means to ensure that the Torah will never be forgotten, we have this song which delineates the evils and the distresses that will befall the Jewish people in the event that they stray, that in itself, the consequences for a misbehavior is what's going to ensure that we're going to forever remain connected to the Torah. Moses wrote the song on that day and he taught it to the children of Israel. And like we said, it's been written. We haven't yet read in the Torah because now the format's changed. You write it and then you convey it. And then God commanded Joshua, the son of Nun, again, this is the first time we have a conversation between God and Joshua, the handover of power. Joshua was now having direct communication with God. God tells him, be strong, be courageous. You're going to be the children of Israel to the land that I've sworn to give them. I shall be with you. So it was when Moshe finished writing the words of the Torah onto a book, all the way to its conclusion the commentaries note that what this means is that Moshe wrote the entire Torah, including the two portions of the Torah, two parshas that we have not yet read. And he commanded the Levites, the bearers of the Ark, of the Covenant of Hashem, and he tells them, take this book, take the Torah, and place it at the side of the Ark of the Covenant of Hashem, your God, and it shall be there for you as a witness. Rashi tells us there's two different opinions. According to one, it was placed inside the Ark itself, next to the tablets, both the ones that were broken and the ones that were not broken, the first and second set of tablets. Alternatively, there was a second opinion that it was placed upon a shelf that was outside of the Ark, and it was placed over there next to other things that were kept for posterity, namely the vial of manna and the staff of Aaron that sprouted almonds. And in addition, the Midrash tells us, like we mentioned earlier, that Moshe wrote 13 copies, one for each tribe. The minister was on to say that he gave one to each tribe and he spoke to them, spoke to the men, spoke to the women, and he reminded them of the messages of Deuteronomy. He warned them to abide by the dicta of Torah and he gave them the book, he gave them the scroll that they are going to use for their tribe for many generations To be the one that's handwritten by Moses, to be the one that they used to copy other Torah scrolls, but again, to serve as this testament of this rich tradition and transference of, of Torah from God to Moshe and Moshe to the Jewish people and so on and so forth from generation to generation. And finally, the Parsha ends where Moshe is going to gather the nation one more time and he makes the announcement, gather to me all the elders of your tribe, your officers. I want to speak to them the words of this song. I want to call heaven and earth to bear witness upon them. The commentaries explained, even though it's happened several times, that the heaven and earth were called as witness, but there was to warn the Jewish people. Now it's, he's going to be speaking to the heaven and earth themselves. And Rashi explains that this gathering of the people, it was done manually without the trumpets. Previously, we've talked about the trumpets, how the trumpets were used to announce the gathering of the Jewish people together. And here, on the day of Moshe's passing, he no longer was able to use them. Even Joshua himself was not able to use them. They had to be put away. They had to be archived. They had to be buried. Because even Moshe himself, he no longer had that same power, that same authority that he had previously. And he gathers the nation and he tells them, for I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly, You will stray from the path that I've commanded you. Evil befall you at the end of days if you do what is evil in the eyes of Hashem to anger him throughout your handiwork. Rashi tells us a very powerful idea that Moshe is saying here, I know that after my death, you're going to act corruptly. Yet, Rashi tells us that throughout the times of Joshua, they didn't act corruptly. Quotes a verse in the book of Judges. Jewish people worship God all the days of Joshua. So how can Moshe say, after I die, you're going to act corruptly, when it was only after Joshua died that they acted corruptly? And Rashi tells us, from this we know that someone loves their student as much as they love themselves. So long as Joshua was alive, Moshe felt that he was alive and therefore when he's saying after I die, in effect what he's saying after Joshua dies, because Joshua is just an extension of me, he's my student that I love so much, he's my extension. After I die, i.e. after Joshua dies, we know that you're going to go astray and therefore it's very important for you to hear the words of this song. Moses spoke the words of this song into the ears of the entire congregation of Israel until their conclusion, the content of that song that's going to serve as a witness for God, that's going to call the heaven and the earth to stand witness and bear testimony of these warnings and of these consequences of deviating away from God, that is going to be the subject of next week's Parsha, the penultimate Parsha of the Torah, Parsha's HaAzinu. I hope you enjoyed this Parsha podcast. My name is Rabbi Yaakov wolby Please email me, RabbiWobi at gmail.com. I look forward to speaking to you next week.